reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. appreciate Tommy reading all of those verses. I wanted to establish uh, what Paul was attempting to establish by inspiration in the early part of that chapter, and that is man's spiritual condition. And then when he begins introducing the subject of grace, it should mean all the more to us because of knowing where we have come from spiritually. I have made no secret of the fact that what my favorite Christmas movie is. It is not A Wonderful Life. It is not Miracle on 34th Street. It is Muppet Christmas Carol. And I love the movie because of the wonderful score, the absolutely brilliant score composed by Paul Williams. And then Kermit, what an actor. Oscar worthy. But one of the movies that has made one of the staples of the Christmas season is Christmas Vacation. I think it was released about 1989. There are parts of the movie, obviously, I can't recommend. But it's, it's about a man by the name of Clark Griswold who wants to give his family the perfect Griswold family Christmas, but somehow everything goes sideways. It just keeps going wrong. And one of my favorite scenes is early on in the movie is, is the Christmas dinner. Clark asks his elderly and almost deaf Aunt Bethany, the oldest member of the family, if she will say grace. She doesn't understand. So Uncle Louie, sitting next to her, says very loudly, grace, they want you to say grace. To which Aunt Bethany responds, grace, she's been dead for 30 years. 
And then Uncle Louie tries to clarify the blessing. They want you to say the blessing. And so she says, oh, and then she folds her hands, bows her head, and begins, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And the whole family stands up and begins reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. Like with Aunt Bethany, there's a lot of confusion about what grace really is. And if we can aptly define it and describe it, there are some who, like her, would maintain that grace has been dead for a long, long time. But you know, it was one of Paul's favorite words when he wrote his epistles, and it's certainly a common term in, in Christian circles. But the question I want us to ask this morning and answer briefly is exactly what is it? What does the term grace mean? And, and, and I'm not just talking about the word itself. We could settle that by just opening a dictionary. But I'm talking about grasping the concept of grace and the spiritual implications of God's grace in our life. When we sing that old, old song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, what does that mean to you? And, and what impact does that have on your heart, but also as a motivation, as an incentive to live the way God would have us to live on a daily basis? For several weeks now, we've been exploring the important biblical theme of God's grace, and we've been talking about examples of grace experienced by numerous people in Scripture. We've looked at some Old Testament examples. We've looked at some New Testament examples of people who clearly were responding to the grace of God in their lives, and that grace was manifest and sometimes in some very powerful ways. We've looked at the Chronicles of Samson, and we've asked the question how God could have ever used such a flawed man to accomplish his purposes. And yet he did. And then we've looked at grace from the perspective of King David and his many sins. And we've talked about grace when you've done the unthinkable. And many of those stories don't even use the word grace in them. You'll not find that anywhere in the account. But the idea, the concept of it permeates every one of those biblical examples. This morning we're trying to wrap our our minds around the concept of grace so that when we encounter it, we'll recognize it more readily, we'll learn to cherish it for the precious gift from God that it really is. So I want to begin with the fundamentals, and that is to at least attempt a definition. What is grace? And more importantly, of course, what does it mean when we find it in a biblical context? Because when you look at an online dictionary, you'll find no less than 20 different ways that the word grace is used. And so you have to decide, first of all, which of those words, which of those ideas is it that you're trying to define? Grace is sometimes used in 20 different ways, at least 20 different ways in our English language. Everything from a prayer said before a meal that we've already talked about to a grace period on an insurance policy. And then there's gracing someone with your presence. And then there's the, the, the woman's name, Grace, which is prevalent today. To a title of nobility, as someone is referred to respectfully as your grace. But the biblical word comes from a Greek word which simply means a gift. Something that is given, something that is received without being earned. I think that's the essence of it. And if we don't emphasize that last phrase, without being earned, then we really haven't grasped the concept of God's grace. When applied to God, that's exactly what grace is. God God extending his divine mercy, his favor, his forgiveness, when we actually deserve condemnation to reap the full eternal consequences of our sinful behavior. That's what we deserve. 
And if there's any self-awareness about us at all, if there's any understanding of God's holy word, I believe that we would all be in tacit agreement that none of us deserve what God offers for us, and that is the salvation of our eternal souls. One of the best definitions I've ever heard of grace is grace is getting what you need instead of what you deserve. I mean, that's kind of a working definition, but it's, I think, one that's apt nonetheless. And that's what Paul was talking about when he wrote in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us deserves condemnation is Paul's point. And he's not trying to get us to feel bad about ourselves. He's trying to get us to feel good about God. He wants us to understand what God has done in his willingness to overlook the reality of sin in our lives and the fact that even as his people, we continue to make poor choices from time to time. Every one of us sin, Paul said. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we've got to know our spiritual condition before we will ever really deeply appreciate what grace is all about. And because of that, he goes on to say, therefore, We're justified by his grace as a gift. It's exactly the opposite of what we deserve, but it is also exactly what every single one of us so desperately needs. And then in our text, Ephesians 2, if you want to open your Bible back to that place, Paul emphasizes the undeserved nature of grace by saying this is not your own doing. I love that, that you can't misunderstand that. That's powerful stuff. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He's just spelling it out for us. And I remind you that all of this was made possible by Jesus coming to this world and dying on the cross. While we were gathered around the table, as Andrew said a moment ago, it's the essence, it's the heart of Christianity. Jesus dying. That tragedy that turned into the greatest victory that the world has ever known is why you and I have the option and the opportunity to gather in a place like this and to talk about and to be in wonder at the amazing grace of God. And and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, John 1 and verse 14 So salvation comes then not because of our own works, Paul says in our text. You can't work your way to heaven and not even by the works of God's own law. But because of Jesus bearing the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's why any one of us has the opportunity and the blessing of being in a redeemed, saved relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If salvation were by works, if we could somehow earn our salvation, then Jesus' death would have been unnecessary and ultimately it would have been meaningless. He would never have had to shed his blood at all if we could, by righteous living, save ourselves. Or as Paul stated it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. One version says Christ then died in vain. But even with definitions, and even with trying to describe it as best we can, and even by analyzing our own hearts and maybe talking about the emotions that we feel when we think about the fact that God has given us what we need and not just what we deserve, we have difficulty somehow grasping the concept of God's grace and the fact that it can be offered to any one of us. Grace is such a wonderful concept, folks. 
And it is our only hope, but we sometimes have a hard time grasping it and accepting it. My question is why? And, and the, the, the bulk of the, the study this morning is going to be to answer that. There are several reasons why we have difficulty grasping God's grace. Reason number one, because of our natural tendency to expect to get what we deserve. We call that justice. We call that fairness. You know, having raised four children... And having witnessed the children of others and even our own grandchildren, developing child, his first word is usually either mama or dada. But I am absolutely convinced their first complete sentence is, that's not fair. I mean, that's just one of the first sentences that came out of the mouths of our kids, at least. It seems that way. Getting what we have coming to us is okay if we're talking about our turn at bat or our take-home pay. That's all right in those discussions. But when it, comes, when it comes to God's judgment of us, trust me, the very last thing that we want is to get what we deserve. It's not about fair. It's not about unfair. It's about what we desperately need. And it's like giving food to someone who's starving, who can't who can't provide for themselves. They didn't buy it. They didn't earn it. But they have to have it in order to be able to survive. Second, because we don't comprehend the depth of our own sinfulness. And notice I said not your, but our. I think we all are in this same ballpark in this regard. If we think of sin as simply a few isolated mistakes made by an otherwise decent person, then we may never come to sense the need for God's grace. We may think instead, well, it's my mess, I can clean it up. But Ephesians 2, 5, if you'll lock in on verse 5 for a moment, it says without grace, and Paul's very clear about this, he said without grace we are dead in our trespasses. And I don't have to tell you, the dead can't do anything to help themselves. They're far beyond that. Sin, folks, is not a minor ailment that will go away through concerted effort. What it is is a deadly infection that permeates our very souls and that only God can cure by his grace. Sin is, is a violation of God's holiness. It is an offense against his nature. The Bible tells us sometimes in precept, but most of the time in, pre, in principle, that God cannot countenance sin. That's one of the reasons why he had to turn his face away from Jesus as he bore our sins on the cross. I think we understand that, but that's the holiness of God and how deeply he is offended when we violate his will in our lives. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1 in verse 18 that, that our sin results in God's wrath. God is not dispassionate. He is not indifferent about the fact that people sin, that they violate, they transgress his will. God's wrath is incurred when that happens, and we need to understand that. And then he goes on to say, and I am so glad that he did, that only God's grace can then save us from God's wrath. There's not a thing in the world that you can do where we can say, now God owes me. I, we, I have leveled the playing field, and, and God needs to. He, he must give me salvation, and he must extend his grace toward me because I've done all the things that are necessary to deserve that. Nobody would ever live long enough to be able to make that statement. Here's a third reason why I think we have difficulty grasping his grace is because the reverse sometimes can be true. Sometimes we are super sensitive about the guilt in our lives. Some people have no real awareness of their sinful nature. 
And then there are other folks who are just so spiritually sensitive that they go around on an extended guilt trip all the time. You know, their bags are always packed. You don't have to pack for them. They're ready to go on a guilt trip. And that's not the way God wants us to live either. It's possible that we know how sinful we really are. So it's hard to believe that that someone who knows all about us like God does could extend his grace and his mercy to us. That is just beyond the ability of some Christians to be able to fathom. We, We know in our hearts that we don't deserve it. This is going to be profound, so hang on to this. That's why it's called grace. You're right. You're right about that. We don't deserve it. That's why it is God's grace. We, God knows fully just how sinful we really are. Even when we're not aware of it, God knows that. But he loves us anyway, and he offers what we need. But like the song that we sang earlier this morning that we could not, we could not get for ourselves. The Christian life should be lived with a constant awareness that he who knows us best somehow still loves us the very most. Ask me if I have fully grasped that, and I would have to tell you no. But I'm grateful for it anyway. Aren't you? Aren't you so glad that the God who knows you best is still the one in this universe who loves you the very most. Here's a fourth reason why we have difficulty grasping his grace, because sometimes we have an unbalanced understanding of God's nature. Unbalanced in the sense that while it's true that God is entirely holy, that fact demands that his people also be holy and righteous and that he cannot tolerate sin, as we just mentioned. But that's not the whole story of God. It's also true that he loves us, And that he is not a harsh judge. He is not some kind of cruel taskmaster who's wanting to condemn us. He isn't a referee looking for an opportunity to to throw a flag or maybe to even eject us from the game and then get some kind of moronic satisfaction from that. We We don't want to make the mistake that Martin Luther made when he said, these are his words, by the way, I was, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter. And made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. I've talked to some Christians who have that concept of the nature of God. God is not the God of comfort for them. God is the hangman of their soul. He is the, the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, kind of Jonathan Edwards' concept of God. And Paul assures us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, if we ever are under that delusion... That God would have all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. Peter says something very similar in his second letter, chapter 3 verse 9. God is not slack, not lax concerning his promises. As some men count laxness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm glad those two verses are in the Bible, aren't you? I'm glad we have that assurance. That blessed assurance. Of the awareness of God's grace extended to us even when we don't deserve it. God wants every one of us to be saved. It's true that he judges those who reject his grace. There is a judgment day coming. And everyone will give an account of himself before God. Romans 14 verse 12 clearly says. And, and if we've lived God's will to the best of our ability, God's going to take that into account and we will be rewarded justly. But by the same token, if we've rejected his grace, then we're going to have to bear the consequences of that choice as well. But but that's not what he wants for us. 
God doesn't want anyone on this planet who's ever lived or who will ever live if the Lord delays his return. He doesn't want anyone rejecting his magnificent grace. He, he wants more than anything to save us and to live with us in eternity. I, I've reminded you a number of times. That's Why else would his, he send his son to die for us if he didn't really want every one of us to be saved? Here's the fifth reason. Because we transfer our experience with unforgiving human relationships onto God. Maybe you were brought up around people who never practiced forgiveness. They were the I don't get mad, I get even kind of people. And, and some of you are nodding like you've known people like that. Maybe you know people like that right now in your own experience. We, we can easily get to the point that it's hard to believe that anyone ever truly forgives the guilty. Even God. Can God just act like my sin never happened? The Bible says so. But that's what we're talking about. Can we grasp that? Can we understand the package of God's grace to the point that we can understand how that a just God could turn his back and say, I'm going to act as if that never happened. You know, if you're a good parent, you can't do that. You want your children to act right. There needs to be some enforcement. How God can forgive us is beyond our ability to conceive. We cannot... We cannot project the faces of people who are unforgiving onto God because God isn't like those people. He's God. And I don't know about you, but I thank God literally every day that he's going to be the one who will judge me and not some person. Because we have limited understanding. We have li limited patience. We have limited tolerance. And sometimes we have limited wisdom in being able to assess the behavioral attitudes of other people. And so I am glad, and, and glad doesn't even begin to express how glad I am that God is the one who will judge each of us. Or it may be that you're, I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. I, it may be that you're the unforgiving person. It's not someone you know. It may be you're the one who, who holds grudges and, and you assume that God is just like you or maybe at least he ought to be. And here's the really good news. God isn't, isn't like us. He wants to forgive. I'm going to say that again. He wants to forgive. And always remember, God isn't lo looking for an excuse to condemn us. God is looking for an excuse to save us. Six, because we've gotten the idea that guilt is the primary reason why we serve God. And if we lose our guilt motivation, then we will not be faithful to him. Sometimes people think that way. People in his spiritual kingdom. It's the idea that I need to do X or else I will feel guilty. Or, or maybe I have already done something and, and I, I feel guilty, so I need to do X some good work, something that is noteworthy so that I can have that guilt feeling go away. So maybe if I do enough good stuff, then, then my guilt will be assuaged somehow. Now here's a news flash. Guilt motivation will only get you so far in living for God. Isn't that right? Guilt will not carry you all the way where God wants you to go to the end of your spiritual journey and motivate you consistently and validly to do his will every day of your lives. And that's why, if I may get personal, preachers who try the hardest to motivate people using guilt usually get lots of responses walking down the aisle, but very few long-term transformed lives. 
because guilt won't move us forever. We will soon forget about the guilt. If It's kind of like what John said, and, and uh, Andrew quoted this a moment ago uh, when we were talking about the Lord's Supper, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. It's like fear in that regard. And when John talks about perfect or full-grown, mature uh, love cast out fear because fear has torment. That's kind of what we're talking about in terms of guilt here. And, and John says you can't run scared forever. If fear is your primary motivation in serving God, I'm afraid I'll go to hell if I don't do this or I don't stay away from that. If that's your primary motivation, you can't run scared forever. That's not going to last you as a motivation for serving God for the long haul. If guilt is our primary motivation, then we'll probably only do just enough that's necessary to remove that guilt feeling and to make us feel forgiven again. And that's why there are people in the church who practice a minimalist Christianity. Minimum amount of Bible study, minimum amount of worship, minimum amount of prayer, just trying to do enough to get rid of those guilt feelings. They're trying to do just enough to stave off those ever-present feelings. I'm just here to announce to you the obvious. A far more powerful motivation is the understanding, listen closely, church, because we're almost through, and this is so very, very important. Here's the greatest motivation that we could ever have for Christian living, for doing God's will every day of our life, is the understanding that Jesus Christ has already died on the cross and pardoned us from our sins, that his blood has already washed away every one of those sins, in the waters of baptism. And if we've done that based on a penitent and sincere heart, he has already redeemed us. He has already forgiven us. Listen to Paul. For I am, Paul writing very personal here, and when he says I, that's not the universal I. He's saying I, Paul the apostle. I, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Forgiven and forgotten, well, forgiven, but never forgotten by Paul, what he did when he persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul writes, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, watch this very carefully, but it was the grace of God that worked in me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10. Paul, what was your major motivation in living the Christian life? Once you saw that what you'd been doing with your life was directly and diametrically opposed to God's will for your life, Paul said it was God's grace. I am a walking example of the grace of God embodied. Finally, we've been taught that there's no grace or mercy unless you do everything right. Now, the problem with that thinking, of course, is that that's not grace salvation by grace that is salvation by perfection but it's very easy to fall into that trap and a lot of people out there think it's gospel but it's not because folks that's bad news not good news and you and I know that the gospel is by definition God's good news and here is the really good news while we were yet sinners Christ died for the ungodly the news doesn't get any better than that the good news is that every one of us and every one of our sins, those are just the very sins that Jesus died for. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people over the course of my life in the ministry. And sometimes there are people who come and talk to me because of some very prevalent sin in their life that is at that moment unresolved. 
And, and, and while the conversation, the dialogue could easily deteriorate into how awful I feel and how terrible this is and all of that may well be true. It is always my proud announcement to that person that whatever sin that he or she is dealing with in their life at that moment, guess what? Here's some good news. That's the very sin that Jesus died to forgive you of. There's not a sin that you have ever committed that God will not absolve and wipe from his book of memory. Why? I have no earthly explanation for it. Other than grace. God's amazing, wonderful, multifaceted, ongoing, never dying grace. And I hope the next time we sing Amazing Grace, some of what we've talked about this morning will come back to you and you'll be able to sing that song with greater meaning than you've ever sung before in your Christian existence. And that's one of the reasons we sing that song and we love it so much. But don't get me wrong. Pleasing God ought to be the ambition of every believer. And something is wrong if we have anything less as our goal. If we say, I don't need to obey God. After all, his grace is going to cover everything. Then you've got a misconception about what God's grace is and about what your responsibilities are in this world as you walk in this world as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. But the reality is we are every one of us fallen human beings. And it isn't possible for us to ever get everything right, not ever. We're going to mess up somewhere along the way. And if we could, then we would be capable of saving ourselves by the works of righteousness which we have done. And Paul says, no, it's just the opposite that's the case. We cannot save ourselves by works of righteousness. We wouldn't need Jesus on the cross at all, but we can't. And we, we do need him desperately. There's an old saying... That goes up like this. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help getting there. And, and the reality is someone had to put him there. Because you may want to write this down. Turtles cannot fly. They cannot jump. They cannot climb. So if there's a turtle on the top of a fence post, he got some help doing that. And that's, that's how it really is with grace and forgiveness, folks. We have no righteousness of our own with which to plead our case. Here's what Paul said in the first letter. To the Corinthians, this time chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Listen closely, we're about done. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If any one of us, well let me just, let me be more positive than that. If every one of us goes to heaven, and we're there and we're looking around and we're looking for our friends that we came to know and love here at the university church. And we began to think, now, how did I wind up here? And we began to, you know, kind of put our, our thumbs under our pills and say, it must have been because of all those things that I did for Christ back when I was on earth. And all the good deeds I did in that time that I gave to the storm relief and all those checks that I've written over the course of weeks and we start boasting in ourselves, Paul said, no, that's, that's wrong-headed. That's the exact opposite lesson than the one I want you to get. If anyone boasts if when we get to heaven, let him boast in the Lord. I did nothing that would earn me the right to go to that place. But Jesus Christ 
did what I could never do for myself. And his amazing grace covers my sin. I want you to, and I, pro- I promise I'm not going to preach on this, but I've got to call attention to a powerful parable in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. Please, when you get home, read the entirety of that parable because it really is a parable. The whole thing is about understanding and grasping the concept of God's grace. And it's often referred to as the parable of the unmerciful servant. You probably are familiar with it. And the word grace is found nowhere in that parable, but folks, that's what that parable is all about. Now here's the... Here's the parable in Reader's Digest form. This isn't going to take very long. A servant owed his master, the king, $50 million. I'm actually taking the monetary value of the first century world and extrapolating that into the 21st century. He owed his master, the king, $50 million. When the king demanded the servant repay that debt, the servant fell down at the king's feet, begged for patience, promising that he would repay the debt. Now think about that. If you owed someone $50 million, would the first words out of your mouth go, if you'll just let me go, I promise I will repay it. How could you say that with a straight face? Will any one of us earn $50 million in the course of our lifetime? Likely not. But that's what he, that's what he promised. And then when the master, the Bible says, was amazingly moved with compassion and forgave that astronomical debt. By the way, if the servant repaid the master everything, every penny that he ever made for the rest of his life, I wasn't the one who figured this out, but I did read after someone who had. It would require 400, no, 4,400 years to repay the debt by the average wage, 60 plus lifetimes for him to repay that debt, to pay off that debt, and you think you have credit card issues. But that's exactly the point. The man was so indebted he could never, ever possibly pay it off, even though he promised the king, his master, that he would. And so the master simply forgave him the debt, every, every penny of it. And the Bible says why. And I think that's real, the real point of the parable, to tell us why he forgave the servant that astronomical debt. It says, out of pity. Or one version, the King James that I'm reading from, the New King James says, it was out of compassion. He felt for the guy. His heart was bleeding for that man. And the situation that he'd gotten himself in, but he wasn't forgiven. Please appreciate this about that parable. He wasn't forgiven because he promised to pay it back because he couldn't. And I mean not ever. Now here's the real thrust of the parable. And it's hard for me to say. That hopeless debtor is us. Every single one of us. And it would be impossible For us to ever pay God back for what he's done for us. But God truly, fully forgives us our debt of sins. And then he says, I expect you to do that for other people that owe you. There's a subplot to the parable that we haven't mentioned. That's why I want you to read it. That's what grace is. It's it's owing God everything, being unable to pay anything, and yet being forgiven of everything by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because there's simply no other way. You know, this should be a a powerful motivation to cast ourselves on the grace of God. No payback, no bargaining, no negotiating, just accepting by our faith and obedience what he offers by his grace. In the old western starring Gary Cooper entitled The Hanging Tree, Cooper is a doctor and he's in the business of saving people's lives. 
Well, in one scene, a young man gets shot. I think there's a shootout on the street. There always is in westerns. And, and he's near death. And he's pulled into Gary Cooper's, whatever his character name was, Dr. Something. That's the best I remember. And he's pulled into the man's clinic where he is able to extricate the bullet and save the young man's life. Well, the young man is so grateful for having been rescued, he then, his first conscious moment is to ask Cooper's character, what can I do to repay you? And Cooper, apparently without any hesitation whatsoever, says, well, you know, I've always needed an assistant. Why don't you be my assistant and I will show you what to do and we will just take this a day at a time. And then the young man asks a question that can only be uh, described or explained by human nature. He asks him, well, how long do you want me to be your assistant? I love Cooper's response in the movie. It goes like this. How long do you want me, you, do, do I want you to be my assistant for the rest of your life? Because that's how long you would have been dead if I hadn't saved you. Well, good answer. And God has said to you and me that that's, that's what he wants from us. To serve him for the rest of our lives on earth since he has saved us. He wants us to yield ourselves to his purposes, to his pleasure, and to his will for the rest of our lives. And if you're good with that and you want to do that, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.